774. So Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, we'll be looking, we'll be reading uh, through verse 17. Well, if fishermen are known for anything, it's for their stories, maybe for their smell. If they're known for anything else, it's for the way they like to exaggerate the details of those stories and for the way they like to repeat those stories. Every time you hear a fisherman tell his tale, the fish gets a little bit bigger, the fight gets a little harder, especially when the fish manages to get away. Over time, you, you come to expect uh, you come to expect it, and so as enjoyable as those stories are, most of us have learned to take the word of a fisherman with a certain grain of salt, sometimes with a whole shaker of salt. Now, given the reputation of fish stories, you learn pretty quickly not to accept anyone's word about their fish, especially a big fish, unless it's accompanied with a picture and a measuring tape or a scale. Maybe that's why, of all the details recorded in the book of Jonah, the story of the fish that swallowed him is, is really the one that people typically find the most memorable, but also maybe the hardest to believe. I mean, this has got to be the greatest fish story ever told, which has led some people to argue that Jonah is supposed to be understood allegorically or symbolically, not literally. They argue, rather unconvincingly in my opinion, that this doesn't change the meaning or the significance of the book itself. But I think it does, and I'm actually led to be convinced that the book of Jonah is an accurate recording of real events, really for four big reasons. Really, first, I believe that God's word reflects his perfection. God cannot lie, and therefore his word is without error or mistake. The book of Jonah does not represent itself to be an allegory or a, tell, or a tall tale, which is intended to impress some morals on us. It is written and it reads as history. And it is clearly intended to teach us about the nature and the character of God, which means that the, that intention, I think, falls flat if the things recorded in this book don't act, didn't actually happen. Second, I'm particularly convinced that the book of Jonah records real events, including the story of the fish, because of the way that Jesus himself speaks of it and applied it to himself when he spoke about his death and resurrection, as recorded in Matthew 12 and then in Luke 11. Jesus doesn't speak as jo of Jonah, the fish, or the people of Nineveh merely as characters in a story, but as real people. And his warning that the people of Nineveh would, on the day of judgment, rise up and condemn his own generation for their unbelief comes up rather empty if the events recorded in the book of Jonah didn't actually happen. Third, while the odds of being swallowed by a fish or a whale or some other sea creature may be very low, they're not actually out of the realm of possibility. Last year, a lobster diver was actually swallowed by a whale off the coast of Cape Cod. And there are many other credible recorded instances of people being swallowed and recovered. So what's described in our passage, while it is quite amazing, is not out of the realm of possibility. And fourth, the book of Jonah aims as a whole to expose us to the power and to the goodness of God who made and rules over all creation. This is yet another detail that the book of Jonah, of the book of Jonah, which exposes us to the mighty power of God and impresses on us all the more how God has poured out his love and compassion on those who do not deserve it in the most amazing ways. He is a God who accomplishes the miraculous, 
And that's something we should keep in mind as we think about the connections and the implications of this passage and what it means about uh, to show us specifically about the way that God has poured out his love and compassion on us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So for those reasons, I read this as a real, and I've, I've chosen to talk about the uh, whether or not I believe this is this really happened here and now, because I think this, if, if there's anything that's going to make you stumble and, or question the validity of this book, it's probably this passage. But I think that it's real, and I want to treat it as such, and there's good reason to understand it that way. And so that's what we're going to do. So let's begin this morning by reading our text. If you would, please stand uh, with me out of respect for God's word as I read from Jonah chapter 1. Verses 11 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Then they, that's the sailors, said to him, that is Jonah, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, there's a reason that when people think about Jonah, this is the passage that so often comes to mind. This really is the climax of Jonah's flight away from God. This is the moment when the hand of God closes in around him and plucks him from his disobedience in a most incredible fashion. This is what it looks like when God takes hold of a rebellious sinner with a, with a merciful hand, bringing them to repentance and rescue. And that's what I want to focus with you on today as we explore this really well-known passage together. Now, our main idea this morning is drawn out from our text, but it's also present in the connection which Jesus makes to himself from it about his saving work on the cross and his victory over the grave, which is why Brad read from, uh, from Matthew 12 for us. So the main idea, what I want to impress upon you from our passage this morning is this. Our God has swallowed up sin and death in Christ. And therefore, he leads us to repentance, faith, and salvation. Our God has swallowed up sin and death in Christ. And he leads us to repentance, faith, and salvation. This is a passage that bears significance in and of itself for what it shows to us about God's determined pursuit of sinners and the way he has shown compassion and mercy to them. It's also significant for what it anticipates in the work of Jesus. And, and that's something that I'm willing to say in great confidence based on the way that Jesus himself handles this passage, connecting it to his own suffering, burial, and resurrection. 
There comes a point in, a, in God's pursuit of a person where they are brought to the end of themselves, where they are brought to a point of repentance and confession, where they are transformed through his saving power into a new creation, which has been remade in the power of Christ and in the likeness of Christ. And we get a, a foretaste, a, a, a foreshadowing of that in our passage here. And that's what I want to cover in our three points this morning. So this morning we're going to be looking at, at three things uh, pertaining to salvation. So in saving sinners, we see that God leads them to repentance and confession. He leads us to repentance and confession. Secondly, we see that he gives them a heart of faith and worship. He gives them a new heart of faith and worship. And finally, we see that he does this because he has swallowed up death for us. He has swallowed up death. I'm going to begin by looking at repentance and confession. Now, uh, I don't know if I've ever said this before. I, I played a lot of paintball and airsoft in high school. Uh, it started really as uh, playing with friends on the weekends in, in whatever woods we could, we could get in. Um, and then it progressed actually into to traveling to all these repurposed warehouses and actually playing in some, some like multi-day wars, which is a lot of fun, uh, even out of state. But one thing that stood true, wherever we went, wherever, whoever we played against, it always seemed like there was someone who wouldn't call themselves out after they'd been shot. These, these sorts of things require that people use the honor system. Uh, you have to tell, I have to say I've been hit and leave. And it's not like you can have a referee watching every, everyone. So we came to have just a standing policy that rather than get angry about it when someone wasn't calling themselves out, we would just get their attention and, and encourage them to do so with a few bonus balls until they couldn't ignore it anymore. Basically, it was scream till they yell or shoot till they yell. So um, we had to get their attention. And we see in our passage that God had clearly gotten the attention of Jonah and the sailors through this great and terrible storm, which he had hurled against them. Now, this wasn't a game. Their lives were in jeopardy. And this storm had a purpose. Jonah had tried to run, but he could not hide. And so as we come to verse 11, we hear the sailors asking Jonah what needs to happen next. More specifically, they say to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? That's quite a statement. What do I need to do to you so that I don't die here? That's, that's really an interesting question. But this is the pressing question. At the end of verse 12, Jonah actually acknowledges that this storm is his fault. He had disobeyed God. He had run from him. And now he had jeopardized this ship and everyone on it by going the complete opposite direction God had called him to go. The sailors knew and understood that this wasn't just any storm. Uh, and as the tempest on the sea grew stronger and stronger, they realized something's got to happen. Something's got to be done. We can't just acknowledge something wrong has happened. Something has got to, to atone for this. Time was running out. Jonah's sin against the Lord had to be dealt with. Now, I find this question from the sailors really fascinating because it shows that they knew something had to be done about Jonah's sin, but they didn't presume to take matters into their own hands. They don't come at Jonah as a mob. They come to him rather humbly. Actually, they come to him as a prophet, asking him, what does the Lord require of us? Obviously, Jonah, you're the cause for the imminent death that's hanging over all of us. So what are we to do to you that we may have peace? Well, Jonah's response, he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. 
Then the sea will be quiet, will quiet down for you, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now to be clear, from the perspective of the sailors, this was a death sentence for Jonah. And our author has done a masterful job of connecting Jonah's sentence to the storm. Remember back in verse 4, we were told that the Lord hurled this great wind on the sea to create this tempest. And now Jonah is matching that language in what he says to the sailors, that the only way they can escape the storm, the only way they can have peace, is if they hurl Jonah himself into the depths of the sea, into this embodiment of chaos and unrest. And Jonah's answer is important because it forces us to acknowledge the harsh reality of what sin is and what sin demands, what it deserves. Where sin goes, death follows. Romans 6.23 explains that the wages or the result, the reward of sin is nothing less than death. If we look in, in Genesis 3, we see that in the Garden of Eden, God had given Adam and Eve one command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He had told them that they could eat of the fruit of every other tree in the garden, but he had warned them not to eat of this tree. For in the day that you eat of it, he told them, you shall surely die. Paul explains in Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Death is the sentence that is rightfully laid against sinners. And death is the sentence that was rightfully laid against Jonah. When we read the book of Jonah, we already know the, that the fish is going to eat him, right? We already know. We've heard it so many times. And so it's, it's easy to miss the fact that for the sailors and for Jonah, they didn't know about that. This looks like death for him. In death, we see this also, the sentence that's laid against us, because we have all transgressed against God. We all fall short of the glory of God. We have missed the mark. Following the example of our forefather Adam, we exchange the glory of God for, temporary, for the temporary pleasure that sin offers us and promises us. So as we read about Jonah, we should see ourselves, we are each like him, caught in the righteous judgment of God, deserving to die, not just a physical death, but the eternal torment of God's wrath in hell, where his holiness falls on sin and sinners with a white, hot fury. As we look at this storm, we are seeing the message that justice must be satisfied. Now Jonah told the sailors the only way that this could happen. He told them that the only way that the sea could have peace, the only way that it could quiet down for them, the only way that they could survive this, was that they would have to throw him into it. However, we see in verse 13, they were not very keen to go down that path. They actually decided to try a different one. They decided that maybe they could get Jonah back to land, and this would fix all of it. So while Jonah had told them who he was and who he served, we see that they had become exceedingly afraid, and it was, it was clear to them that the storm had come upon them because of Jonah, and I think maybe they were afraid of what God would do to them if they threw his servant overboard, abandoning him to this death that was around them. They may have asked themselves, what, what, is, what if we do this, and then God consumes us in his anger? There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way that didn't involve throwing Jonah into the jaws of the sea. 
So we see that they put their backs into it. They rode as hard as they could against the storm, trying to get back to land. But it was no use because we're told the storm only grows worse. The waves are only getting bigger. The ship and its crew is only getting weaker. And so in verse 14, we see that they finally gave up. And they gave in to what Jonah had told them. On the wooden deck of that ship, they called out to the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the earth and everything in it, and they prayed, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. What an incredible moment. On the one hand, you've got Jonah, this famous prophet, who had forsaken his call, tried to run from God, been pursued and caught, finally brought to the end of himself, not fighting against God anymore, not not trying to wrestle out of his grasp, but rather acknowledging his sin and committing himself into God's hand. On the other hand, you've got these pagan sailors who are breaking their backs trying to rescue Jonah from the end he really deserves, only to come up short, exhausted, and in a worse state than they were at the start giving themselves also over to the mercy of an omnipotent God, calling on the one who had made them and sustained them and cared for them through his common grace all their lives, calling on him for the first time, calling God by his covenant name and giving themselves and Jonah over to God's good pleasure. This is one of the most profound moments in the book of Jonah. As we look at these two parties, we see what true repentance looks like. I think sometimes repentance gets grouped into the whole aspect of what happens when, when God saves a person. We don't always savor what it really is. As we look at these, these two different parties, these, these sailors and Jonah, we see repentance goes deeper than just to be sorrowful over sin. It is, it is grief over sin. It is not merely merely feeling sorry that we have been caught in the consequences of our sin, but it is actual sorrow over sin itself. Repentance flows from a heart that has been turned from sin to God, which has gained through, through, through grace a right understanding of what sin is. A repentant heart is broken over sin. A truly repentant heart acknowledges that God is right to judge sin. Repentance requires us to be honest with ourselves and with God because it means pleading guilty before His throne of judgment. It means looking at the stacks of evidence that sit on the prosecutor's desk and acknowledging, yes, those are all mine. I am a great sinner and I deserve the sentence that is owed me. This is what we find pictured in the example of Jonah. If we take a look at the lives of the sailors, we also see that repentance is a ceasing of effort on our part to try and find a way out from under the shadow of God's judgment through our own, our own works. Feeling the weight of our sin, of our guilt before God, that is not, that is not repentance. To just feel it, that, that is conviction. Conviction is essential as a first step, but conviction in and of itself can't save us. 
Conviction is that first fear which fell on the sailors, which made them row as they had never rowed before, trying to find a way out, trying to hedge their bets even, trying to find salvation through their own efforts. It was only when they had ceased from their efforts and submitted themselves to God that they actually found rest and relief. So as we look at Jonah's words and the prayer of these sailors as they call out to God, we can see that true repentance involves at least five things. First, it means acknowledging that we are sinners and that God is right and that we are wrong. Second, it accepts that God is right to judge us for that sin. Third, it forsakes hope in all other avenues we might pursue. Fourth, it turns from that sin to God. Someone who's repentant is not just saying, oh, sorry God, but I'm going to continue going after my sin. No, it turns from that sin to begin pursuing Him. And finally, fifth, it submits to God's good pleasure. That brings us to our second point, faith that worships. Now, as we read this, we see something has changed in these sailors as they put down their oars and they lifted their voices up to God. They had tried to find their own solution to a a hopeless situation. And they had exhausted every option they had. And now they're giving themselves over to the hand and to the mercy of God. The sailor's prayer is particularly interesting. Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. As soon as they had regard for Jonah as a servant of the Lord and for his life, God had made it abundantly apparent to them that there was no other way for Jonah's sin to be dealt with. These sailors didn't know that God was going to deliver Jonah. They gave no thought to the creatures that were swimming beneath the boat, and they weren't aware of the great fish that was headed on its way to them. Instead, they came before God, they prayed for mercy, and they prayed that Jonah's death would not be held against them. It's particularly interesting that they they asked God not to lay innocent blood against them. Uh, Jonah wasn't innocent. But, But... he hadn't been convicted in a court of law. The impassibility of the storm and the combination of Jonah's words had made God's will known to them. And so they finished their prayer, You, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. We have no other choice. We're giving ourselves over to you and trusting you. So in verse 15, we see the sailors did exactly what Jonah said to do. They pick him up and they don't just toss him. They don't just make him walk the plank. They hurl him into the sea. A part of me wonders, why, Jonah, why didn't you just jump in yourself? I mean, it seems like it would have saved everyone a lot of trouble if he'd have done that. But I think we have to remember, Jonah didn't know that God was going to save him. He was embracing a certain sentence of death. But there really would have not been real justice if we'd seen Jonah commit suicide. It's not stated or explained in the text itself, but I think that God had a purpose in having the sailors themselves hurl Jonah overboard because this was a display of judgment and justice coming on Jonah for his sin. He had endangered their lives. His sin was against them and against God. But added to that, I think by requiring the sailors to do this, it required the sailors not only to come face to face with the reality of God and his power, but it also became an act of faith on their part. I think that they rode the way they did trying to get Jonah back because they weren't willing to have Jonah there. Like, this is the one thing that, as far as they're concerned, that's keeping them alive. So it's throwing this overboard and saying, okay, God, we trust you. So we see that they hurled Jonah into the sea, having exhausted every other means because he told them to do it. 
They had to act in faith, trusting that the God of Tempest would hear their prayer and not hold them guilty for Jonah's life. And when the sea ceased its raging and became calm again, it was apparent to them that everything Jonah had said about God was true. He really was the Lord, the the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land and who rules over all things. Not only that, but they, they saw that God had heard and answered their prayer, delivering them from the storm of his justice and bringing them peace. In verse 16, we see that the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So look for a second, look back to verse 9, and then come back to verse 16. Look at the change that happens between this verse 9 and verse 16. We see that these sailors go from being exceedingly afraid of God to fearing the Lord exceedingly. There's a change in words. That's what Jonah, remember, that's what Jonah had told these sailors he did. I fear the Lord. Now we have that same language being used of these men, except we're being told that they feared the Lord exceedingly. And we see what that looks like as they're offering him a sacrifice and as they're making vows to him. Now, we never see or hear from these sailors again. We don't know what happened to them. Uh, uh, The Jewish Mishnah actually indicates that they threw their idols overboard. They went back to Jerusalem um, and that they they became Jews. They became proselytites. Now, we don't actually know that. Um, And some scholars think that maybe these sailors just added God to a list of the other gods they served. And while I guess that's possible, I I think that's really pessimistic. And I think it misses the point that's being made here in the text itself. Here's what we do see loud and clear in the text. These sailors go from being total pagans, praying to gods who can't deliver them, to really having no knowledge of God or having any regard of God, to being men who are afraid of, of God, to being men who have been brought to the end of themselves in the face of God's justice, to being men who have let go of all other hopes, who then commend themselves to the Lord, act on faith, are delivered, and are now here worshiping the Lord, calling on Him, making sacrifices and vows to Him. That is no small thing. That is a total transformation, something which we see reflected in the way the Bible talks about salvation. When we, as we saw back when we were studying the book of Acts earlier this year, which we see also explained in depth in passages like Ephesians 2, we are all, apart from Christ, dead in our trespasses and sins, following after the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even while we were dead in those trespasses, has made us alive together in Christ. So so Paul says, by grace you have been saved. And you have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, the gospel doesn't end with repentance. It, it, It starts there, but it doesn't end there. It also leads us to faith. And faith then leads us to worship. Not in a worship that is driven by a heart which is afraid of God, which does what he wants out of a a feeling of, oh, I've got to do this or God's going to crush me. Not in an effort to pacify his anger, but in a worship which is driven by a right regard for him. 
by a love which is driven by a true knowledge of him and powered by the Holy Spirit which he has given us as the sign and the seal of our inheritance. The message of the gospel is uncomfortable because first and foremost it makes us face the harsh reality of the judgment which we deserve. It opens the door of our hearts. It shines a light inside on the deadness within It brings us then before a holy God with nothing to offer Him, nothing to make things right with. It puts us on our knees before Him, and then it raises up our eyes to the cross where the payment was made for us to look on Jesus Christ who took that penalty on Himself and has swallowed death up for us. Which then brings us to our third point, the God who swallows up death for us. As Jonah was hurled from the ship into the chaos and the death that was below him, he met something he did not expect. In verse 17, we see that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I mentioned this before. I actually I was reading this story about a lobster diver who was swallowed by a whale off the shore of Cape Cod last year. He said that he was minding his own business, it was a great day, and then all of a sudden he felt the shove behind him and everything went black. And he just talked about how disorienting it was. I mean, it was, it was daytime, and all of a sudden it's night. And, and initially he thought he had been eaten by a great white shark because he had seen those out there before, but he realized, I'm not bleeding, I'm still alive, where am I? And then he started to realize that he was, in fact, alive and in the mouth of a whale. And so the horror of his situation sank in. Now, he was only in the whale's mouth for about 30 to 40 seconds before it it surfaced and it spit him out. But he described how uncomfortable and how unnerving it was because he could feel the whale's muscles squeeze him and crush in on him. So I can only imagine what it was like for Jonah to have experienced something like that in the belly of this fish for three days. Now we know that God actually used this fish to deliver Jonah from the storm and then to return him to the land so he could go on to Nineveh. But before we start filling in the blanks of the story, before we start pressing on to those details, we need to relish this moment for a little bit. Just think about it. Because at the time when Jonah was first swallowed, as he felt himself in the belly of this fish, he must have felt himself to be in the very belly of death. In fact, as we'll see next week as we get into Jonah's prayer, which he prayed to the Lord while he was in there, we'll see that very much was the fact. Now so far this morning we've talked about confession and true repentance. We see how that leads us and is coupled with saving faith and, and worship. But as we think about this fish, and we think about Jonah's time in it, I want to finish our time this morning looking at the way that God has overcome sin and death for us. Verse 17 has a very important word. We are told that the Lord appointed this fish to swallow Jonah. This was God's purpose and his plan. He is overcoming Jonah's disobedience. He had humbled Jonah, he had brought him to repentance, and he had actually brought salvation to these sailors. And even though God did not fit, see fit to stop the storm until Jonah was cast into the deep, we see that he did not forget Jonah. He was there with Jonah, and he was working through Jonah's death. You see, it was not God's will to remove the storm from the ship 
until Jonah had been cast in, until he had tasted death for these sailors. And it was not the Father's will to remove the cup of divine wrath from Jesus, the Son of God, until it was drained and satisfied in him for us. This is a connection which Jesus has drawn for, him, for us himself. And when you see it, I think it completely changes the way that you read about Jonah and about this great fish. In Matthew 12, verse 39 through 40, Brad, Brad read for us, we're told about how Jesus had been approached by some of the scribes and the Pharisees who were, had, had the audacity to come before him and say, ah, show us a sign so we can believe you. And we see how Jesus answers them. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, I can't imagine what these scribes and Pharisees thought when Jesus said this to them, but we understand that Jesus was, in fact, speaking about the way he was going to go to the cross, where he was going to die, after which he was going to be buried, and where from which he was going to rise on the third day, bringing salvation to all who believe in him. Jesus calls this the sign of Jonah. He makes a, a direct connection to what Jonah went through in the belly of the fish, to what he was to experience in his time after he was buried. Now we can hardly say that Jonah's experience in the belly of the fish made atonement for sins, and we understand that Jesus didn't die for sins that were his own. But by making this connection for us, we can see how Jonah was foreshadowing Christ, pointing us to the way that God has worked now to save us from sin and from death. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes how he delivered as, first, as a matter of first importance what he also received, that Christ died uh, for sin in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was buried on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, sorry, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelfth, then also to five hundred brothers at one time, then to James, the apostles, and finally to him. God appointed Jonah to bear a certain kind of death, being cast into the sea. But he also appointed to deliver Jonah, though he did so in a way that looks to Christ, who, is actually, who actually took death for us on himself, who was buried not in the stomach of a fish, but in the heart of the earth, who then emerged victorious on the third day. As, as Peter confesses in Acts 2, Brothers, I may say with confidence about the patriarch David, being therefore a prophet and knowing what God had sworn uh, with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So here's the point. Jonah, for all his blemishes, for all his blemishes, points us to an unblemished Savior who leads us through his Holy Spirit to repentance, faith, and life in him. It's because of Christ that we can look at the mountain of evidence that is laid against us, hearing the calls and the cries of our accuser, Satan, and say to him, yes, yes, I, so I am. I am a great sinner, but 
Christ. He is a greater Savior. And where He is, so shall I be also. As Jonah was swallowed up by this great fish, so Christ Jesus was swallowed by the earth. But on the third day, Jesus broke death and emerged, as Jonah did, from his grave. God has appointed him the Savior of all who repent and believe in this good news. He has swallowed up death. So the sign of Jonah, as Jesus refers to it, is a sign for two things. First, it is a sign to believers that our God has swallowed up death for us. As Paul exalts in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin, the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul says, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So the sign of Jonah secures our hope as believers. It is also a sign to unbelievers. Jesus, in the context in which he spoke of the sign of Jonah and applied it to himself, spoke it to people who had rejected him. He says that this was the only sign which would be given to the twisted and corrupt generation to which he came, which for all the signs he did, for all the words he spoke, even for the way he died and was raised, rejected him and did not believe. He told those same Pharisees and scribes who came asking for a sign that on Judgment Day, the people of Nineveh who saw Jonah would rise up and condemn them because they had received something greater than Jonah and still they would not believe. So, let me end this morning with an appeal for you to look to Christ who entered the belly of death for you, who atoned for your sin. Look this morning to the Lamb of God appointed by the Father for you to rescue you from sin and death. He is the God who brings us to repentance and faith because He is the God who has swallowed up death in His victory over the grave. Look to Him, trust Him, live in Him. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we have, we have dived into a text that I think many of us have so often taken for granted. And yet we have seen something profound in it. Father, I pray that when we sit down to read to our children or to our grandchildren or, or to speak to someone this week about what we heard preached from the pulpit, that we wouldn't just tell the story about this big fish that swallowed a man, but we would tell the story of how you have come, how you have dealt with the problem of our sin, for the way you have led us to repentance and faith, and let us worship you as we recount the glory of Christ who has swallowed up death for us. Father, I pray that you would give us this, comp this great confidence to live uh, as you've called us to do, with courage, with boldness, and with faith in his name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our final song this morning.